So the title of this one is in the volume of the book. So I want to pray before I begin. Father, I thank you right now, Father, for your spirit, Father, in this place. Father, let me operate right now, Father, according, Father, to what you desire for me to talk about, Father. These are your children, Lord God, your sons and your daughters, Lord God. Father, I count it an honor, Father, to feed, Father, your children, Father. Work through me, Father. As your Holy Spirit, Father, teaches me, Father, what to say, Father, and what to teach, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, in the volume of the book. And this is the second half to what I taught about the last Wednesday, that you were in Christ. So we have entered a time, and I'm going to be going almost intentionally kind of, you know, slow, because I know how the human mind is. We hear something, and then we gravitate to it and we think about it. And before you know it, when we come back, I'm talking about something else because your mind kind of drifts to what I may have said before and you're thinking and you're pondering on it. So I'll be slowing it down intentionally. And I also have some notes, some slides in here, some notes for you. Um, that I did that on purpose because I really, this is more along the lines of teaching. There's some specific things that I want you to get. So we have entered a time in the earth where in regards to the gospel being preached, the message of what we consider to be the good news does not capture and does not project the plans or the original intents of God to father us. So when I say it does not capture, what I'm speaking about is the fact that it does not possess, it does not seize, take control of, and it also does not set free. So not only does it not capture, it does not project. And the reason why it does not project, when you project something, it's a collaborative look at something. But it's also based on trends and datas. So we're in a time where the message regarding the gospel does not project. Based on what we have going on right now, it does not project the original intent of God as a father to father us. Most of the messages in which we hear can be summed up majority of the time as pretty much that God has your back. So which should bring us to the conclusion that our theology, meaning the study of the nature of God and how we believe. So our theology may be off because if it doesn't project what's going on in the earth today to bring healing, to bring deliverance, to bring maturity today, then our projection is off. So the first scriptures that we're going to go to is Hebrews 10, 4 and 9.
And in this book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, Jesus says this prophetically. Okay? So starting with verse 4, he says, now he is praying to his father, but at the same time, this is prophetically. So verse 4, he says, for if it is not possible that the blood of bull and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for sins you had no pleasure. Now, why is this? I'm just kind of stop right there. Why is it? He's, he's pretty much projecting the heart of the Father. He said that you, there was no desire in these burnt offerings that, you, that people were bringing in order to, you know, for their sins to be done away with for the next year. They never were cleared out. But he said you had no desire in these things because they could never measure, these burnt offerings could never measure to the standard to take the people's sins away totally and to conform them to the image of Christ or even change them. They can never be the propitiation. And remember what we talked about what propitiation mean. They could never be the acceptable standard. Verse seven, then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So in this verse 7, he says, I have come in the volume of the book, for it is written of me to do your will, O God, meaning to do what has been foreknown and to do what has been preordained. Now, they're two separate words. Foreknown... He, means to be aware of an event before it happens. To be in the mind of God before it manifests in the natural. He said, I have come to do what has already been foreknown. What, what in the beginning, what was in your mind, I have come to do that very thing. It is in the volume of the book that is written of me. Then, he's, then it also means to be preordained. He said, I come to do your will. What has been preordained means that what has been decided and determined beforehand, which means that this was a part of his purpose and this was a part of his destiny. Now, I know we use those words interchangeably, but they mean two different things. He came to do the purpose of God, meaning the reason why he existed in the first place. That's purpose. And then he came to do, he, he came to get his destiny. Now, destiny means the events that will happen to a person or a thing concerning their future. So he came to do what he was created to do. He said, in the volume of the book, it talks about what I came to do. 
He said, I came to do why the reason why you put me together and I totally exist, my purpose. And then I came to do your purpose, your destiny, your destiny, meaning the I came to do the very events that need to happen in order for me to get there. Verse eight, previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come again, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So our first note is this. And I'm going to slow this down. I first noticed this, that the true mode of displaying gratitude was not by the offering of slain animals, but by the sacrificing of the will in accordance to God's will, that your ears are open to the word and that the word is in your heart to such a place where when it comes to legal offerings and the law, there is no comparison. It makes it void. And that's why he said in verse 9 that he takes away the first that he may establish the second. So when it says in the volume of the book, it is a reference to scrolls during that period of time they had scrolls. So a book may have been written in multiple scrolls. So it is in the particular volume of the whole book in that particular scroll, he was saying within that context, that it would be like our understanding of a book in a chapter today. So when Jesus is saying in the volume of the book, it is written to me, he is referring to the scriptures that contain references to what he was designed by God to do when he came out of God through the heavens into the earth. And as the volume of the book is rolled up and it came to the place where it was now required that the word, which was him, who was before creation of the world, that the word which was known in the mind of God in the beginning it would be incarnated into a body, into flesh, in a person that was written in the volume of the book before it took place. So when it was rolled out in the time and the place in the volume where it was written, it was now time for him to agree with God to come into the world to take his place in the world according to what was foreordained by God and written in the volume of the book concerning his life. So he had the option of agreeing with God or not. But when he agreed with God, it was time for him to be given a body, to do the will of God that was known about him before he had a body. Because it says, 
in that same scriptures in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, it is written in the volume of the book concerning me. And then he turns around and says that you have prepared a body for me. So what does that mean? There is a distinct separation of the body and Christ. There's a distinct separation of Jesus and Christ because we have Christ in the beginning. And he says, a body you have prepared for me. So we're going to look at the differences. This is our second note. We're going to look at the differences between Jesus and Christ. Even though they are one, they're functioning different. So Jesus, when we talk about Jesus, we are talking about the body. We are talking about the sacrifice. We are talking about the one who takes sins away. The one that brings you back into right standing with the Father. The one who walked on the earth to show you an image of Christ and the relationship he had with the Father. When we say Jesus, we're talking about the door. We're talking about the way. We're talking about the truth. We're talking about the light. When we're talking about Christ, we're talking about the spirit. We're talking about the son that was given. We're talking about the anointing, the power that raised Jesus, meeting the body from the dead. We're talking about the standard, the one who who gets you reconciled back into the family of God in the process of adoption. The one you need to have a mind like. The one you receive your inheritance from. The one with all power, the one with all authority, the one in which all things were created through him and for him. The one in which you are a part of the body and subject to. The one you are married to as being the bride of Christ. So you are not, you have to know this, you are not primarily a body. You are primarily a spirit. You are known in the mind of God before you came into your mother's womb, before you had a mother and a father Just like Jesus, a body was prepared for you. So, the Bible says that when, and we'll go to that in in a little bit. We'll actually go to Revelations 20 and 12. It talks about the books being open. And how everyone is judged according to those books. And it said, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them for this heaven and this earth are passing away. And it says, I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. And the dead was judged according to what they had done as written in the books. That is everything done while on earth. So it brings us to a question. What is written in the book of the volume of your life? Well, it has to do with a comparison between what God intended for you to do when he saw you in Christ and what indeed you actually did once you hit the earth. So our next note is this. When you depart from the Father's original plans that he has for you, there is a need to reconcile you back to it. If you are ever going to come back, the act is not an initial thought about who you are. So it doesn't just sit in your mind. We're not talking about just knowledge of the mind of that I'm in Christ and you just got that knowledge. We're not just talking about that. We're talking about the setting you back into the modality or the mold that was in the mind of God concerning you before you came into the earth. Because there is a volume of a book that is written about your life and what you're supposed to do while you're here on this earth. So, I'm gonna give you some examples. That how sometimes, how things can kinda of go over in the natural as far as you doing something on the earth and in what God really intended for you to do. Now, sometimes you can be doing this particular thing I'm getting ready to tell you, and you're operating in God, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your whole life being consumed in that thing, and you're not using that thing in order to bring glory to God. So, for example, if God has called you, as far as the body of Christ, to be a pastor, and you desire decide because the Bible says the gifts and calling come without repentance. He's not going to take his gift away from you. But you decide instead of being a pastor that you would rather be a, you become a manager of a company. You become a director of a department. And you never reach your pastoralship and what he created you to do. You are out of the original plans of God. Another example, if God has called you to be an apostle and you decide instead, because this translates over to the natural, that you want to be a business owner instead. You want to be a CEO or an architect or a scientist and don't use your life for apostleship to bring glory to God that you are out of the original plans. If you decide, if God has called you to be a teacher for the body, but you decide to be an elementary school teacher, a professor at a university, 
or a trainer for a corporation, you are out of the original plans of God. If God called you to be an evangelist and you decide you want to be a sales associate, a car salesman, working in marketing, a case manager, because all of this translates over to the natural, then you may be out of the original plans of God. If God has called you to be a prophet and you decide to be in a consultant, to be a senior analysis, to be a counselor, but don't bring glory to God in what you do, then you're out of the original purposes and plans of God. If God has called you to the healing ministry for the body of Christ, but you decide to be a nurse, you decide to be a doctor, you decide to be a surgeon, you're still using your gift, but it's for the wrong kingdom. If God has decided designed for you to be in the ministry of helps, but you decide to use that to work for Lowe's and customer service, or you're a janitor, any assistant job, without bringing glory to the Father, you are out of the original plans. So that is why Jesus would cry out in Matthew 26 and 29, He is praying to the Father, and he is crying out. He said, Father, he said, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because in the volume of the book about him, it was written that he would drink the cup. Which is to say that he would have to consume, he would have to carry intentionally the weight of man's transgressions in order to be the propitiation. He would have to carry us in himself and submit to everything that God intended that he submit to for us to be accepted to God, covered in and carried within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the volume of a book that is written about you and me, part of what is written about us is that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And which... God prepared in advance for you to walk in. But that we too would drink from that cup, that same cup that he was praying to the Father, God, if you would take this cup from me, but nevertheless, let your will be done. We too have to drink from that very same cup. Now let's see what that cup is. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11. And we're going to look at Romans 12 and 11. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 11 first. I'm going to read this first and then I'm going to break this down. It says, but we have this treasure, meaning Christ, this seed 
this imperishable seed, we have this treasure in earthen vessels in our bodies that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. So we're not doing anything in our strength. The power is coming from him. The excellency of the power he is the source from. That we are hard pressed on every side. This is the cup that we're drinking. And yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who are alive are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we're going to talk about some of these. It says that, because this, this is the cup that we're drinking from. It says that we are hard-pressed. What does that mean? We are shaped and smoothed by the application of pressure. That our life may be stressful, that people may annoy you, and you're going to get upset. It says we are hard-pressed, but it says we are not crushed. Now, what crushed mean? Crushed means we are not feeling overwhelmingly disappointed. Life doesn't overtake us. We are not subdued or overtaken to the point of nothing. It says that we are perplexed, meaning that we are puzzled. We don't know what God is doing. Sometimes we don't even know what's happening. Like, Lord, <laughs> what is really going on? That is perplexed. We are perplexed. We are puzzled. We are confused mentally, he said. But we are not, he said, in despair, meaning that we are not completely lost or in the absence of hope. Because Hebrews 6 and 19 tells us this. It says that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It says that it enters in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, our forerunner, has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It says we are not in despair. We are not completely lost or absence in the presence as far as hope is concerned. Then it tells us part of this cup that we're drinking from that we're going to get persecuted. Meaning that we are subject to someone else's hostility and ill treatment. Especially because of our beliefs and the name we decide to bear. We are persecuted, but it says that we are not forsaken, meaning that we are not abandoned. We are not deserted. John 14 and 18 tells us, he said that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That in Matthew 28 and 20, it says that I am here with you always, even until the ends of the earth. So we are not forsaken. We are not left and abandoned as orphans. 
it says that we are struck down. Meaning that we're going to suffer from rejection. Things may not turn out like we wanted to. We may get heartbroken. We may be abused, misused, mistreated by other people. We are struck down. But it says that we are not destroyed. Meaning that it doesn't put an end to our existence by something attacking you. Romans 12 and 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Why is this your reasonable service? Because he had to drink the cup first. And if he carried you in his body and he had to drink the cup and he had to do the Father's will, he said, this is your reasonable service for you to carry Christ, for you to bear my name, to you to submit to the original plans of the Father. So there is now a people who actually want and cry out to the Father for the original things and plans of God. And they are going, they're not going to be satisfied until they reach what God intended for them to do. So what do they want? They want what is written in the volume of the book of their life. They want to know who they are. They want to hear that I am in Christ, that I was created for a purpose. I was designed to do what God intended for me to do. I was designed to be put on display and carry the presence and the glory of God. But let me add this, that you were created by God for these reasons. In order for those reasons to be satisfied, you had to be created in Christ in order for that to happen. God never saw you, remember, apart from Christ. And it does not say that he did not see you apart from Jesus Christ. It says that he did not see you apart from Christ because the intention was never to assemble you to another human body. It was always to assemble you back to the spirit. So, Luke 23 and 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It said, having said this, that he breathed his last. He was done with his earthly mission, no longer as the sacrifice, but now it says that he was lowered. And Christ, it says, when he did that. So upon raising him from the dead, God made him to be both Lord and Christ. Now, lordship in the Latin is a word, it says, dominus domini, meaning that God raised him from the dead to be the Lord, the dominant one. That this is not the one who was designed to agree and listen to your opinions. 
but the mere fact that he already knows what you're created for. So in regards to all of that, I want you to understand that your progress in God, discovering the truth and discovering that there were things known in God about you before the foundations of the world. When you discover it, it's going to be new to you, but it's not going to be new to the Father. But it was written about you before you came into your mother's womb. And I will say this, that no matter what we accomplish in this life and no matter how much things that we, we gain as far as materialistic things, there is still a crying out of the soul of who you were designed to be. That no matter if you got all the material things in the world, you would still never be satisfied until you actually found out what you created to do and began to walk in that. So the humility of God is that he would choose to be clothed upon in human flesh, to be who God called him to be. That the moment God created, he took on the role of a father. Because the moment anything comes out of you, you have to know this. As regards to anything, you are its father. And it's not like you can create something and say, I'm not the father. Now, one of the Maury moments, <laughs> you are not the father. <laughs> so we can never be happy. We can never be content. We can never feel as though we are successful in life, no matter what we acquire, until we are reconciled to the purpose that God had in mind, written in the books concerning us, and to fulfill that purpose. So, now that I have set the foundation of this message, the second part of this that I want to set up in terms of the present circumstances in order to lay the foundation of this message is that I want to talk about God's rest. because we say that kind of fluently. But we're going to talk about God's rest. The word for rest in the Greek is kataposis. K-A-T, for those that's writing this down, K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. That's K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. And it literally means to repose, to lie down, but it also means to abode, which is like in your home when you would rest in a location. So there is a matter of lying down. The assumption is that when you are at home, you can lie down and be at peace. So when you talk about God's rest, we are really not talking about God doing nothing. When we speak about you being at rest, never, ever make the mistake that rest means that you are not doing anything. In fact, on a personal level, 
I could not work as hard as I do, but for the fact that I am at rest, meaning that my daily life consists of ruling in conflict. It is the steady diet of my life that I am called routinely every day, multiple excuse me, multiple times a day to address the crisis in people's lives or the conflict and not only in my life but other people's lives that there is no possible way for me to function and do that unless I'm at rest. Except if I'm in a location of abode that I am abiding in something and something is abiding in me. I am daily working hard to remain in him and for him to remain in me, because some people, they're trying to take you out of that resting place. <laughs> they will. Not seeing things my way and seeing things his way. So you're, when we talk about the rest of God, we're not saying you're not doing nothing. What we're saying is that actually you're working, but this is a soul work out. That you're doing everything you can to stay in God, to keep a good character, to bear his name. You're purpose seeking. You're not ruled by your flesh, you're not ruled by your emotions, you're not ruled by your appetite, your will, your desires, your aversions, but you are led by the Spirit instead. So we spend time gearing up and coming to this place talking about what is the place of rest and abode for us in, in Christ and him being in us. So in the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, the words in him are spoken several different times. You can see the word in him, in him, in him through that whole book of Ephesians because there is nowhere else to lay down. There is nowhere else to be at rest unless you're in him. So, for example, when a child is in their mother's womb. Do they have a choice? What they gonna eat? <laughs> you don't have a choice. Do they have a choice if the mother has a doctor's appointment? <laughs> do they have a choice to say, well, I don't wanna go? Why not? <laughs> because the child is in the mother. So when you are in him, it's not about your opinion. It's not about what you want to see. You are in him. You are submitting to the headship. You are the body, not the head. Even when you are driving or you on an airplane, you can't be like, well, everybody else going to Phoenix. Um, I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> you don't have a choice. You are on the plane. Wherever the pilot is going to steer the plane, guess what? That's where your drop-off going to be. Or you're going to have to get another ticket. You don't have a choice because you are on the plane. You're at the mercy of the pilot. 
So what I'm trying to tell you is that you are in him. And if you are deciding anything other than what he designed for you to do, you are going the wrong way. You are causing conflict for your own destiny and your own purpose. So let us read 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. It says that no temptation has overtaken you except, because a lot of times people miss that word because they get excited about the no temptation has overtaken you part. <laughs> it said no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now I need you to get this. He's not going to protect you from, He's not going to, I want to say protect, it's the wrong word. He's not going to prevent it from happening because he said the weapon is going to form. But he says it's not going to prosper. And here it backs up what he said there. Now he said that no temptation is going to overtake you except such as common to man. He said, so there are some temptations that are common to every man that you're not going to be able to escape. But based on who you are personally, he said, there's a certain amount of pressure that he knows that you can bear. And with that pressure, he said he's going to make a way of escape, meaning that he's not going to. We're not talking about the type of escape is saying, whoo, that went by me real quick. <laughs> I escaped from it. Not that type of escape, because right after that, it says that you may be able to bear it. The type of escape, he's going to give you the power to endure and to bear it. So we're going to actually, we're going to break this scripture down by verifying it with other scriptures. That even though temptation comes, you're going to be able to bear it. He said three key things in here that we're going to look at in this scripture. He said that God is faithful. God is faithful. The second thing is that he knows how to deliver you. And the third thing is that he keeps his covenant with himself. So the first one we're going to look at is that God is faithful. Because that's what it tells us in, this, in that scripture. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. So we're going to look and see what it says when it says, God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1 and 9. It said, God is what? Faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
meaning that he is faithful for he called you into the fellowship. There was a plan in the beginning to bring you into the fellowship because he already knew Adam wasn't going to make it happen. So he was faithful and doing his portion to bring you back into the right standing. The next thing we said that he knows how to deliver you. Because remember in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, it says that who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So meaning that he knows how to deliver you. And, and from that, we're going to look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 9. That's pretty lengthy, but it's very powerful. It says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, he was tormented in his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust until punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to deliver you. He said if he delivered Noah, if he put angels in bondage. He turned around, delivered Lot. It said that he was tormented in his soul, all the wickedness that was going on. It bothered him in his soul that he not only knew what they was doing, he heard the wickedness and all of the mischievous things that were doing when men were sleeping with men and women sleeping with women. He said that that tormented him in his soul. He had to be in a situation like that. It said, but if God can do all of that, he said, he said, definitely the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. The last scripture that we're going to read, Romans 8, 12 through 16. Romans 8, 12 through 16. It says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death 
the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Meaning that you don't owe your flesh anything. When it tells you to do something, when it tells you to say something, you don't owe it anything. You are not under the rulership and the lordship of your flesh anymore. But you are under the lordship of Christ. You are led by the spirit. You walk in the spirit. So the last thing that we're going to go over is what does it mean? Because we talk about you being in Christ. What does it mean to actually be in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? So we're going to go over a list of things. The first thing is that when God saw you, he saw you in Christ, not excluded from the original plan. What does it mean to be in Christ? Meaning that he did not allow you to come here and then decide to save you. When he saw you in Christ, he saw you when he saw his son. There was a plan for you already designed for you. The second thing, what does it mean to be in Christ that you did not make yourself? And if you did not make yourself, that means that we got to go back to the one who made you. We got to go back to the original plans and intentions of the Father. Third, God is the Father of your spirit. Then you have earthly parents. He is your father first. He gave you parents. But he is your original father. That's why it says that we are, what, brothers and sisters in Christ. Next, you are not in you. And it seems kind of obvious, but it's stuff that we just need to be reminded of. You are not in you. You are in Christ, which means that he takes the lead. Next is, if you are a member of his body, unless you are the head, you do not know how to think. Your ways are not his ways, and your thoughts are not his thoughts. He said to set your mind, meaning that your mind is not set. You have intentionally have to set your mind. You do not know how to think, and that's why it says have the mind of Christ. Because once we come into this world and we have parents and we start working and we, we actually we may come into a culture of something, all of that shapes and molds our mind to the point where we don't even know how to think like Christ anymore. 
When you are in something, the call is not what you can do to control any other member in the body. You are a part of the body. So that it does not mean you control parts of the body. He is the head. Because anytime I try to control you, it's off. Now I'm trying to be the head. Because remember it says, one part can't say, I don't need you. The hand can't say, I don't need the eyes, I'm good. <laughs> I don't need you. I was like, okay, now you're going to see where you're going. And the feet can't say, I don't need the ears. We're not here to control one another. We're here to conform to his image. We're here to allow him to be the head. Next is that if you are in Christ and he is the head, then you're going to have to trust him, not only with yourself, but you're going to have to trust him with other people too. You're going to have to trust him to direct you. Trust that he knows best for you. Trust that even though you're, remember, perplexed and you don't even, like, uh, this don't even make sense what I'm doing right now, but God told me to do it. You're going to have to trust that because he knows. Then once you get that down, then it goes into you got to trust them with other people. Lord, help my wife. Lord, help my husband. <laughs> help my children. You got, you got that concept down. Okay, I'm trusting God. Now it's other people you got to trust them with. If anything is left in you to oppose your destiny, then that is exactly what the enemy is going to use to control you. This is what it means to be in Christ. If you got any area of your life, if you have not submitted to the Father, that is going to be an entry point for the enemy to prevent you from getting your destiny and your purpose. If you have problems with por pornography, it's an entry point. If you have a problem with your anger, it's an entry point. If you have a problem submitting to authority, it's an entry point. If you have a problem dishonoring people, it's an entry point. If you always closing your ears to hear good advice and wisdom, it's an entry point. Next is that you came with a destiny you came with a purpose, and you came with an assignment. So part of being in Christ and God seeing you in Christ, you came with assignments, which helps mold and shape your character and helps actually put the glory of God on display and that you're changing from glory to glory. That you if indeed, in fact, if you came with a destiny, means that there's a reason why you came into this earth and you're existing. There was so many, and I'm, it might get a little gross, and so many other sperm, <laughs> let me say that, <laughs> seriously, that could have made it, but you did. Which means that God specifically had a plan for you. There's a reason why you created 
and you came with a purpose, meaning that every event of your life will lead you to the reason why you existed in the first place. Because I could think right now for some stuff that I'm like, God, that didn't make sense at the time I was doing it. It didn't make sense. I didn't even want to be an addictions counselor. <laughs> That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an HR director, and I wanted to just crunch numbers and <laughs> be in this office and be a director and do this, this, and that. And it's as if God was like, okay, good luck with that. Let me know how that work out because you'll be back because that's not what I created for you to do. That's not your purpose. Now I'm allowing you to do all of this that you got in your mind that it's going to work and do this and that. And every single time, and it's not the fact that I never got to that place. He allowed, the crazy part about it, he allowed me to do it. And when I got there, once I got there, I said, this not it. This not it. There was no soul fulfillment. Because I thought that, well, if I get this you know, job to a certain position and I'm making this much money that... I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have more peace. I'm going to, you know, this is what I'm trying to do, and this is the goal. And you get there, and it's like, this is not it. So what did I have to do? Go back to the drawing board. All right, God, that wasn't it. <laughs> Help me to discern your plans. Direct me. Lead me. Because the thing about it is this. Once you start saying things like that and you really mean those kind of things like God, direct me, show me, help me, teach me, help me to, you know, learn, show me, you know, is this the right decision to make? Is this the right person for me? Is this the right job I should be doing? Once you start doing that, you're seeking after his intentions. But when you don't do that, it's as if you actually are walking in pride when you don't ask because you are not in yourself. You did not make yourself. So how could you possibly know what is best for you? Was that my last one? Next is to be a new creation means the resurrection I'm going to have to read this one twice. The resurrection of righteous rule of the spirit taking control of the soul again to become an actual new creation. To be a new creation, because it says we are new creation, the holy priesthood. It says to be a new creation means the resurrection of a righteous rule of the spirit taking control of the soul again to be an actual new creation. Which means that Christ indeed has to be the one in which that, that combines with your spirit and at the same time you allow Christ now to take rulership and ownership of your spirit now. Your soul is not in control anymore. 
meaning that your how you feel about something, your emotions, whether you're suffering from, you know, anxiety or you're you're, you know, suffering from depression or you're suffering from like a trauma or anything, it says that Christ now has ownership over that. He is ruling that. That is not the decision-making point of your day. So if you're waking up depressed, well, I don't want to do nothing today. You're letting it guide you. You're being led by your emotions. Or based on how you feel, you're making decisions because of that. But it says when Christ has the rulership over that and the authority over that, there's a resurrection that happens as far as a righteous rule that takes place that begins to rule over your soul again. Because that's the very thing that Adam lost. And when that takes place, you actually become a new creation. Next is that we must trust the Father beyond our daily needs of food, water, shelter, and clothing. That's the basic necessities. <laughs> we got to get beyond that. Because it's not just about that. What did he say? That'll come. So our focus point shouldn't be that. The focus point should be on the original plans and intentions of God to father us. Our purpose that he created us to do. Our focus sometimes gets off depending on what's going on in our life. What our family is saying to us. What our friends are saying to us. And it gets us set off track a lot of times. So we must move beyond this daily need for water, food, and shelter because you have to see that that's still like an orphan mindset. Orphans think like that. I'm worried about my food. I'm worried about my shelter. I'm worried. But he's given you, he already laid it out for you. Seek the kingdom. how his world operates, how the spirit realm operates. You act, you you operate in righteousness, and that stuff will come. But we're not trying to get a relationship with him because of the stuff. We're getting a relationship with him to father us, to mature us, to grow us up. So that when we're out there, we're carrying his presence, we're bearing his name, we're keeping our character intact. And we indeed are a light in a dark place. That we are witnesses of God. That our life is on display at all times. And you got to know that someone is always watching you, how you handle situations, how you talk to people what you do in certain situations. I think that was my last. So I think that was my last one. So what I want you to get from this message is that we want to get to the point where it's time out for us to be saying things just to say it 
but we got to know. The Bible talks about that we have to give an answer. When we run into people and they're going through stuff and they don't know God or they're falling out of fellowship with God, we got to be ready to give them an answer. We got to be ready to be used. We can be used at any time in an airport, at Walmart, because we're in Christ, meaning that we have given up our will. We are instruments to be used. He is the manufacturer. He made us. There is an intention and there's a desire to do his will. If we say that we are in Christ, that is not just words that we read. If we say that we are a new creation, then guess what? There's something about you that has to be new. We can't say that we are a new creation and still function the same way. So let us pray.